Take your Bibles with me, please, this morning and turn to 2 Timothy 4. Verses 3 through 5, the urgency of ministry, maybe perhaps better termed the urgency of uh, faithfulness, perhaps, uh, in, in the context that is ministry, uh, as we would see Paul speaking directly to Timothy in this regard. In the context, as I will relay it to you, of course, as I've said with several of these messages in First and Second Timothy, the primary application is me as a minister, at least within this general body. Um, and yet the applications go well beyond me as it relates to the nature of the time and the nature of the calling upon each of our lives to serve the Lord in the way that, that we, we would. Uh, we have taken, it's been a little while since we've been walking through the text, uh, Last week, I was not here. Two weeks before that, we were talking about this nature of rewards and judgment, right? And uh, speaking on some of those topics. So it's been about a month, really, since we were in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Uh, however, last time we were in the passage, in that week, we considered the nature of this charge laid upon the ministers of the gospel, the call to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And that charge, we're very much right in the middle of that context as we continue that charge, a call to faithfulness extended in verses 3 through 5 today. We stopped in the middle of that important exhortation, and though this message is best received as a whole, there was just too much content to not be able to break it up. So let's begin reading in verse 1, and I want to read verses 1 through 5 together, and then we'll kind of jump into verse 3 um, as we consider verses 3 through 5 together, the Bible says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God, the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Verses three to four speak as to why there's a need for a measure of urgency in ministry. Paul said in verses one and two, preach the word. We'll get back to the idea of ministry in verse five. But in verses 3 and 4, the need for a measure of urgency in ministry. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, the Bible says this, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Within the context of, of Proverbs 6, Solomon calls for us to consider the ways of the ant and thus to find wisdom that these little creatures reflect a measure of initiative and a measure of work ethic, toiling throughout the summer, not just for the day at hand, but to lay up in store, gathering her food in the time, in the season of gathering, being prepared for a season of scarcity through her efforts in time of plenty. It's a call to a measure of preparation, forward thinking, urgency when times are good, not simply to enjoy those good times, but to lay up in store in preparation for the inevitable times when things are not good. Nothing ever lasts forever, does it? 
Every society, every civilization, every individual, every family goes through times of uncertainty, times of lack, times of vulnerability, and each one eventually comes to its end. Until our Lord returns, there will always be an ebb and a flow of prosperity and scarcity of resources. There will always be uh, the beginning and the end. Everything that, that has a beginning within the context of God's created order has an end. And to this end, the wise man works in those days of plenty with urgency, knowing that the days of plenty cannot last forever. This illustration affords us a measure of understanding in my mind as it relates to what Paul is telling Timothy here. The analogy breaks down at a point. Obviously, you can't store up ministry effort in good times to reuse in the bad times, right? But this idea of urgency perhaps can help us understand a little bit of what Paul's going for here. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Contrast what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, with the season which our minds just considered a moment ago. A time of plenty with a time of famine or a time of drought. A time of harvest with a time of barrenness. Think back then to what we spoke about last time we were, to, uh, last time we were in, in the actual context uh, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. The call that Paul gives to Timothy to be faithful in season and out of season. Life and ministry comes in seasons. There are times where things are really rolling, going well. There's times of plenty and there's times of lack. Times of success and times of failure. Times of clarity and times of unknowns. And the call in verses 1 and 2 was to be faithful regardless. But also to be urgent. Because Timothy was in a time of receptivity. A time where people were listening. Paul says it's not always going to be that way. In each epoch in history, in each culture, in each society, increasingly we would see as we near the end of God's timetable, there are times that will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine. That's a very interesting way to describe it, isn't it? Paul doesn't say a time will come when they won't hear sound doctrine. He says the time will come when they won't endure. Very different word meaning to forbear. Not just that there are good seasons and bad seasons, not just that there are times where the harvest is good and times where the harvest is bad, but Paul says there are also coming times which we might liken to be times of true famine, when it's not just that people will not hear sound doctrine, but people will not endure sound doctrine. They will absolutely reject the nature and the implications of the Word of God upon their lives. They will not even be able to have sound doctrine existing around them because it will be so offensive to them. And instead, they will heap, uh, heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, people who will tell them what they want to hear, people who will confirm them in their comfort levels, their comfort zone. We considered the character of the last days 
quite a while ago in 2 Timothy 3. Remember that warning here, verses 2 through 4. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. This character, the character of the last days, the character that we read about here, this does not come from nowhere. It does not form out of nothing. It comes from a people who have rejected sound doctrine and the progression of society thus being beyond rejection to the point where they cannot endure sound doctrine. First, the rejection. The rejection of sound doctrine leading unto perilous times where every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Then the degeneration of society as people are drawn further and further away from the light and the truth of God's word and into the darkness and ignorance of their own sinful and deceitful hearts through empty pleasures. Throughout this time, any number of men and women obviously will be seeing the emptiness of their own hearts coming to a faith and coming to a knowledge of the truth. God always has his remnant but the majority in the vanity of their own minds living in a stubborn and determined and a focused intent of will unto rebellion. The final step along this degeneracy, it would seem, as we look at Romans and as we consider here in 2 Timothy, has, it comes about when when society is so hardened in their own depravity, so darkened in their own rebellion, so heaped about with people telling them of their, that, 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 their, that their evils are virtues, that the sound doctrine which they have ignored, that they have spurned, is so evidently different from them and the way that they live, that they're compelled not just to dislike the light, to ignore the light, but to rail against the light, to fight it with all of their might, not just to ignore sound doctrine, but to hate sound doctrine, to loathe sound doctrine, to have a visceral, angry reaction to truth, to refuse to endure its presence in society any longer. And we've seen this reality any number of times in history, going all the way back to Cain and Abel. We see this, don't we? We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, speaks of Cain and Abel. And he, John describes Cain there as of that wicked one and slew his brother. And why did Cain kill Abel? That verse tells us Cain killed Abel because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain killed Abel to snuff out Abel's light because he could not endure it. It was not what he had done. It was what Abel was doing. It was the righteousness of Abel that made Cain so angry. It was the righteousness of Abel in contrast to his own wickedness that made Cain so angry. And rather than repent, rather than listen, rather than endure sound doctrine and realign, he just killed Abel. Why? Because his own works were evil. 
and Cain's were righteous. All throughout the Old Testament, we find the same trend, well expressed by our Lord in Luke chapter 11, verses 47 to 51. Jesus said, Woe unto you, speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly, ye bear witness that ye allowed the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which were shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. We read of times in the Old Testament of revival and of righteousness and of honor of the prophets of God, but each time in its season, any honor that was given to the prophets of God, any time of righteousness did give way, did it not? To eventual unrighteousness, to a time when the prophet would stand up to speak the word of the Lord and they would not endure the sound of the prophet's voice. And they would beat him and they would cast him out and they would kill him. A generation which would not endure sound doctrine, but would outright reject the truths of God's word and become openly hostile to that truth, calling good evil and calling evil good. And within this, what I discussed a couple of weeks ago as the rhyme of history, we find Paul proclaim this warning that a time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. But much to the contrary, they will seek out those teachers who will conform to their own lusts. Teachers who will justify them in their own excesses, who will release their consciences from guilt, not through in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, but rather through a justification of their sin from a callousness of their own consciences unto truth. Described as having itching ears. It's an interesting phrase that speaks of the concept of always looking for something new. The idea that my, my ear, when you have an itch, you want it scratched, right? We even use that phrase idiomatically regularly in our culture, right? I might say, I'm gonna go scratch that itch, and it's the idea that I have a desire that I want to accomplish, and it's like an itch. It's something that's nagging at me. It's something that, that's on, on me, and, and then I want to accomplish that. I'm gonna go scratch that itch. The idea of itching ears is that a person is sitting under sound doctrine, and you know what? Sound doctrine isn't always glitzy. It's not always glamorous, and it's old. For 2,000 years, preachers have been preaching the same stuff. And they say, well, maybe, maybe we can find something new, interesting. And so preachers, for 2,000 years, have been going off the reservation and looking for interesting stuff, right? The new stuff, reading between the lines, all the stuff that gets people really interested, but gets further and further and further from sound doctrine. See, because if God does not change and his word does not change, then the message is not going to change, right? But they have itching ears. They're looking for something that will satisfy that, that, that craving for something new. And there's always someone to give it to, to, to them, isn't there? There will always be someone to tell people what they want to hear. Itching ears. People who are not drawn to that which is steady and sure and clear and accurate, but to the, that which is interesting and new and engaging and exciting, regardless of its validity or its connection to the truth. 
And when they find these teachers, they will be led by them into the expected results. And we find those results in verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Turn away their ears from the truth and put their love, their loyalty, their priorities upon stories, upon lies. Notice the Greek word there for fables, muthos. Sounds like a word from which there was an English derivation of myth, right? To myths, to stories. Things which might have some reflection of truth or some reflection of reality, but are made up. They're make-believe. They bear no resemblance to the world as it exists, to reality as God has designated it. Men who, in utter rejection of the realities of sound doctrine, utter rejection of its relationship unto them, devote themselves to lies, to myths, and build their entire lives upon a veneer that has absolutely no relationship to reality as it exists. This is the natural outcome of a time when men do not endure sound doctrine, but rather heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That would not be the teachers having itching ears. That would be the listeners, right? Looking for teachers who will tell them what they want to hear rather than what is true. Freeing their conscience from an awareness of their own separation from God while giving them a semblance of godliness, right? Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof as we spoke about in chapter 3. Now, we who sit under the counsel of sound doctrine by God's grace, to whatever degree uh, we do, and, and we try to make that the staple of this church, know full well that we find ourselves, as many others have in history, on the precipice of one of these times. Some might say, Pastor, you're wrong. We're, we're, we're right, right in the middle of one of those times. I, I'm not going to argue with you there. But I think we might just be kind of teetering right now. I think our society is deciding whether it's just a society that's not interested in sound doctrine or one that's unwilling to endure sound doctrine. I don't think we're yet at the point where we've wholesale rejected sound doctrine. Society has wholesale been sold a false bill of goods by culture. Our institutions have been overrun by those who will not endure sound doctrine being promised that the emptiness and vanity of sin, of lust, of licentiousness, of covetousness, of adultery, that these things will somehow satisfy. But I don't know that we've come to the place where society has wholesale been willing to lack an endurance for sound doctrine. Obviously, Hollywood, right? Obviously, uh, the educational institutions, they are, they are there. That is Satan's domain. That's, that's no question. They've been there for generations now. But our society as a whole, I think, is still on that precipice. What, what I don't believe we have seen yet in our society is a full and a complete devolution into wholesale refusal to endure. Cancel culture shows glimmers of this. Our institutions show these things. But they've not yet found a full voice where the expression of sound doctrine is met not just with apathy, but with punishment, but with anger. And if that's true, if I'm right, and you don't have to take that, <laughs> I've been wrong before, but, um, but all, I'm, I'm going to say what I'm about to say based upon that premise. So if you reject the premise, then the rest of this isn't going to make a lot of sense to you. But what this means is that I believe we are at a very unique and critical time in the life of our society and culture when we are on the edge of two possible outcomes. 
The first outcome being that faithful Christians endure the mockery and shame of the cross, preach the gospel with clarity. The Holy Spirit does a work in this time. Men and women are called out of darkness and into the light. They find the gospel is the solution to their sin problem. They realize the deceits and the lies of sin, and they seek unto the, sound, the truth of sound doctrine, pointing their way unto the light. And our society returns to a measure of truth and a rejection of the fables that would seek to consume it. That's one outcome. The second outcome, society continues to want its ears to be scratched. Continues to turn their ears from the truth, and in doing so, they commit themselves to the darkness that is offering to consume it. I think one of the reasons why this last six months or so has felt so dark, the spiritual battle has been so intense, is because it seems as though there's been an offer put on the table that Satan has put out all of his cards. He's laid them out. He said, this is what I am offering you. And the question is, what is our society going to do? What choice is our society going to make? And we find ourselves in 2020, in the midst of the battle for the hearts of the civilization, a society that will either point itself back toward a measure of reality or a society where truth is not just inconvenience, but truth is violence. Where truth is not just something to be ignored, but truth is something to be hated, feared, hunted down, and destroyed. And we are waiting to see which way society will go. How far gone society is and whether or not truth has any sway left in it. Paul told Timothy that the time would come for the church as he ministered there in Ephesus. Remember, that's where Timothy was at this time. He said, the time will come, Timothy, when society around you, when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. And he is saying this on the back of this call. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine because you won't always get the chance. He told Timothy that it was for this very reason that it was so urgent that he be busy about the work. There will come a time that culture, as with every culture and every society, will stop listening. When they will no longer be interested in the steady, clear, consistent truth of the faith, where it's not enough just to be able to stand up and articulate the word of God with clarity. They will turn their hearts to every new thing, after everything that excites and interests rather than the things that are true. And we know that these days are coming because these days are both inevitable and unavoidable. All things trend downward. All things tend toward decay. No society has ever avoided moral degeneration over the course of time. But then it's not hopeless, is it? Because the Spirit of God is still working. Revival is always a possibility. Now, several weeks ago, we spoke to this reality, and we said that though the days are defined by such evils, today need not be that day, right? Today need not be that day. This was a while ago now. That my family need not look this way. That our church need not look this way. That though society will go the direction that it will go, that does not mean we have to go there with them. We considered the exhortation as it relates to personal righteousness, the privilege that each of us has to live in the truth. 
And today we think along these lines of ministry, as Paul says in verse 5. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Paul says to Timothy, here's the thing, Timothy. You are where you are. This is the time in which you live. Do the work. Do the work. Watch in all things. The idea is to take nothing for granted. Let no area of your life fall into vanity, into emptiness, into silliness. There's no time for that. Stay on guard. Live life on purpose. Get up in the morning. Clean up. Get dressed. Make your bed. Don't just float through life. Don't just live for pleasure. Have purpose. Have determination. Do the work. One of the greatest crises in our society, especially among young males, is an utter lack of direction and purpose. No ambition. Devoting our days to uselessness and meaninglessness. When young men devote thousands of hours to video games, which will end up in an accomplishment that can literally be deleted with the click of a button. Isn't that amazing? What, hours that could have been spent doing something that, that is an investment. Now, again, I'm not saying video games are evil or wrong. What I'm, what I'm painting is a contrast. We live in a society where young men are devoid of purpose because their purpose is rooted in, in make-believe. Their sense of accomplishment is beating the boss in a game that, that doesn't exist in real life. And they're pouring their money into something that doesn't, that, that's fake. It's fake. And they're pouring their time into something that's fake. Now, it's one thing to have amusements and diversions. It's another thing to invest your life in something which is fake, right? And that's just one example of how we are creating a crisis of purpose, specifically in our young men, where they're directionless. Nothing is expected of them. We don't expect our men to grow up until they're in their 30s now. When men lack such meaning and fulfillment, they pour themselves into things which cannot profit. And so we have a society which is directionless because we are directionless. When life is so devoid of meaning that one must escape into amusements to dull the ache and find some measure of semblance and of meaning and of worth, we find ourselves in a difficult spot. Now, most young men today are solving this problem by listening to speakers and thus being exhorted to, to make some meaning, to get up, to make their beds, to, to do something, to have ambitions, to stand up, to be assertive. These things, all of that's well, all of that's good. Our men need that in this culture, but, and I speak not just to men here, but, but, but I will speak to men. Um, men, every day that you wake up, you have a commission that rests upon you, well beyond just the commission of take care of your family or take care of your home or, or, or do well at your job. You have a commission that rests upon you. There's a reason why the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God didn't just whisk you away to heaven. If that was it, if the end goal was heaven, if the end goal was, was being born again, then why didn't, doesn't God just take you away when you get born again? He left you here because there's work to be done. You and I have a job to do, Christians, not just men. You and I have a job to do. 
God has left us here for, with, with a commission. Go ye into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded thee. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. You've got a job to do, Christian. Watch thou in all things. The world grasps in the void for meaning, finding it in things, finding it in relationships, finding it in their legacy, but all of these things will pass away. We carry with us an eternal commission which will not fade away. But as society follows their own itching ears away from truth and toward fables, the natural rejection of the truth inevitably leads to a rejection of the truth teller, to the truth bearer. So along with this call to watch thou in all things, Paul then reminds Timothy, don't just live your life on purpose, Timothy, but as, as you live your life on purpose, be prepared to endure afflictions. This is the third time this word affliction has been used in the book of 2 Timothy. The first time being in that common call in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The second time in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul testifies to his own suffering, saying that he suffers trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. Christian, our society continues down a path of degeneration, and if it were to continue on this path, you need to know full well what side you're on and why you are there, because there's coming a day, maybe not in our lifetime, if God is gracious, maybe not in the lifetimes of our children and grandchildren, if God is merciful, but there is coming a day when the preaching of the cross will not just be rejected in this country, it will be punished. But here's the thing, a blessed truth which every follower who has ever experienced the blessed liberty of the gospel knows that these afflictions of the righteous are worth it. Paul calls them in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 light afflictions, which are but for a moment, which work in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Endure afflictions, Christian, that you might win the crown. Endure afflictions that we might, just by God's grace, recover some out of the snare of the devil who has taken them captive at his will. Live with purpose, even unto afflictions, because this is why you are here. This is what you are born again into. So Paul calls Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. There's a battle raging, Christian, and we're on the front lines. The word evangelist was a calling that was established within the early church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 tells us that God gave to the church four general offices, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers. Earlier in the epistle, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul explicitly states that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. I take that to mean that the uh, that Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, that the foundation of the church in that first generation is the apostles and prophets, which means that what is built upon that foundation is the church as tempered by the evangelist and the pastor teacher. That the apostles and prophets, they had their day, they had their ministry, they were the, they were the foundation of the church, but they don't necessarily continue into the structure of the church. The other two gifts then, the evangelist, 
that word literally meaning a spreader of the good news or a preacher of the gospel and the pastor teacher. Evangelist, the man gifted by God to win people to Christ. The pastor teacher, the man gifted by God to disciple the believers and to lead the church of Christ. Now, we know that Timothy was an ordained pastor teacher and he was gifted in this regard. We would believe that by the nature of Paul's uh, uh, communications to him. And yet notice that though Paul, uh, Timothy, excuse me, was an ordained and gifted pastor teacher, yet Paul tells him, do the work of an evangelist. Though many of Timothy's, no doubt his primary gifts were in the area of teaching, discipleship, leadership, Though the gift of evangelist may not necessarily be his, the work of an evangelist was his to do. This did not by any means imply he should not do the work of an evangelist simply because that was not his calling. It did not mean that he should not be about the work of sharing the gospel. In every age, God raises up men with unique capacities and giftings. As well, he gives various believers throughout the church various gifts as we know about from the Word of God. It's been a while since we've walked through the spiritual gifts that that the Scriptures teach about. There are two primary passages that speak to spiritual gifts. The first is Romans 12. The second is 1 Corinthians 12. In Romans 12, we see the gift of prophecy being a proclamation of the Word of God, ministry, serving the saints, teaching, communicating truth, exhortation, compelling action, giving, financial support, ruling, administration and leadership, and then mercy, compassion for the needs of others. We see those as the gifts listed in Romans 12. Then in 1 Corinthians 12, we see wisdom, taking the truths and, uh, truths and applying them to life. Knowledge, identifying and understanding truth itself. Faith, a unique level of reliance upon the word of God. Healing, physical healing through the power of God. Miracles, performing feats outside of the common human experience. Prophecies, in this contrast, uh, in this context there, likely the foretelling of the future. Uh, discernment, the capacity to try the spirits and to understand them. Tongues, the speaking of languages outside of one's learning and experience, and then the interpretation of tongues, the ability to interpret said languages. Now, along this, uh, this list, there are several which we would call sign gifts, and that particularly rooted in the list found in 1 Corinthians 12. I've preached a message, and will do so again at some point when it comes up. I, I tend to preach messages as the Bible uh, brings them up, which means some things of higher controversy in the church don't get preached as often. Fortunately, we've recorded them all. You can always go back and listen to my 1 Corinthians series and hear our statement on sign gifts if you'd like. It is online. Um, but as I preach this message... It defends why our church does not necessarily believe that the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 are found in the regular and consistent operation of the local church beyond the first century. I'm not going to get into all of it today, but let me just give you a quick Cliff Notes version of it. The first truth that this is rooted upon is the fact that tongues was given in Joel chapter 2 as a direct sign of the coming of Messiah to the Jews. In other words, Joel, who was a Jewish prophet, speaking toward the day of the Lord within the, the context of Jewish prophecy, said that one of the marks of the day of the Lord coming would be this idea of speaking in tongues, of uh, prophesying and dreaming dreams, these signs. This would have been essential for the early church to manifest God's work. If God wants to prove that the church is his, 
that God is transitioning ministry from the Old Testament Jewish economy to a New Testament church economy, then it would be essential that the Jews would see the Jews, you know, the, the Gentiles want wisdom, the Jews want signs and wonders, right? That the, that the Jews receive signs and wonders that validated to them this transition. And so Joel chapter 2 places this, this transition into sign gifts directly in line with Jewish prophetic fulfillment. Now second, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 22 that tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Which means tongues does not exist in the scope of the church as a means by which for believers to operate in the church, but rather as a means by which for the church to validate itself in the eyes of unbelievers. Now we put these two together. What unbelievers would be validated by tongues? See, I don't know that an unbelieving pagan would be validated by tongues because they've seen tongues before. In witchcraft, they've seen it. They've seen tongues before. What, what, what is the church speaking in tongues going to do for the unbelieving pagan? But if they're Jews, if they're unbelieving Jews, and they're saying, is this church the real deal? And they see people, they come into the church, and the church is fulfilling the prophecies of Joel 2, they're going to say, wait a minute. This is of God. This is Joel 2. Now again, and, and let, me, let me clarify here the pagan thing. The pagan tongues is not what the Bible tongues is, right? Bible tongues is speaking in known languages. Pagan tongues is, is, is unknown utterances. But what I'm saying is the pagans have seen this idea. But Joel 2 speaks of tongues as a measure of prophetic fulfillment. To this end we would recognize that the primary function of the sign gifts in the early church was a means by which to validate the transition between the Jewish economy and the, the, the church economy. And to prove that transition to that first generation of unbelieving Jews to form a direct link between Old Testament prophecy and the church of Jesus Christ. Now, that the church is well established, we see the church well established in the second, third, fourth generations and, four, and, and on. The word of God is written in full and given to us in full. The purpose of the sign gifts is generally speaking fulfilled. Okay? We then extend this logic, you know, not just to tongues, but to the other sign gifts. Let me say this as well, though. None of this implies that we do not think that God is able to use such things still. What I mean by that is this. If God wanted someone to speak in a language, an unknown tongue, he can, he can do it. If God wants a miracle to be done, it can be done, right? God is not limited. It's not as if miracles can't happen anymore or tongues can't be spoken anymore or prophecies can't be given anymore. God is still perfectly within his right and his capability to allow these things to happen. What we are simply saying is that as a regular operating principle of the New Testament church, these gifts no longer accomplish the purpose to which it seems as though the scriptures presented them. Therefore, we would not expect them in the normal, everyday functioning of the church. And that's the idea. Back to the topic at hand. In every age, God has gifted men who are uniquely effective unto sharing the gospel and unto teaching the word of God. These men are given to the church 
to establish the church, to build the church, to bless the church, to strengthen the church. But the call to go into the world and to make disciples, the call to manifest God to the world around us, the call to be a light, the call to exhort one another, the call to strengthen one another, the call to provoke one another to good works, this is not a call just to me as, the, as your pastor. This is not a call to only those who have been given the gift of evangelism or given the gift of teaching. This is a call to every one of us. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So though Timothy was a gifted pastor teacher, this did not mean he should not do the work of an evangelist. Just as those who have been gifted as evangelists, this does not mean that they should not do the work of the teacher or the discipler. And that's the exhortation. Do the work of an evangelist. And finally, he says, make full proof of thy ministry. Literally be fully persuaded of thy ministry. Be fully persuaded. Live out the fullness of your ministry. Be invested wholeheartedly in what God has called you to do. Explore every avenue, every potential of ministry that God has given to you. Use it to its fullest. Don't leave any of it on the table. Put it all out there. Live it all to the max. This call reflects the urgency of which I've been speaking. Since the time will come, Timothy, when men will no longer endure sound doctrine, be creative, be urgent, be determined, reach the lost, teach the church, do everything you can while you can. Take every gift at your disposal. Take every ability at your disposal. Invest yourself fully in what God has called you to do and do it with all your might. Our Lord spake of the urgency unto this end of his own in his ministry in John 9. He said this, he said in verses four and five, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, look, it's day. This is my time. This is my moment. I've got work to do and I'm gonna do it while the day is at hand. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. I've got a limited amount of time and I've got to keep my foot on the accelerator. Paul would reflect a similar thing in Romans 13, verses 8 to 14. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that lo loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. I apologize, that got cut off there. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and in envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill it in the lust thereof. You know what Paul's saying there? There's no time for you to be playing around. There's no time. There's no time. It's not worth it. Wake up. It's time to get out of your sleep. It's time to stop playing around. It's time to stop with, 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 with the games. It's time to, to get busy doing what matters. There was a time where you walked in darkness, you abode in the darkness, but now you're a, you're a child of the light. So walk in the light. So live in the light. Put on the armor of light. Walk honestly as in the day. Don't live back in the darkness from whence you came. 
Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, deny the flesh, live in the spirit, and get busy. Not, not every one of you will be called to make ministry your full-time endeavor. As a matter of fact, I, I, I think I'm pretty safe in saying the majority of you will not be called unto making ministry your full-time endeavor. But each one of you is called to live in the light every moment of every day. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That's the call. So put aside the works of darkness, the chambering and the wantonness, the rioting and the drunkenness, the strife and the envying. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make provision for the flesh. Don't fulfill it. Walk in the Spirit. This call is a, has, a, has a mindset of urgency to it. Watch in all things, even endure afflictions, because the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. So we work while it's day. As with verses 1 and 2, so too with verses 3 and 5, as I've mentioned, in many ways the primary application is for me as one who is called to full-time ministry. But as our society is progressing toward this refusal to endure sound doctrine, this urgency, I hope you feel the weight of it. that this is not a time to live in hypocrisy. Never is, but you know what I'm saying. If there was a time where, 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 where the Christian church, if there ever was a time where the Christian church could afford to be lazy, to be apathetic, to be floating along, to be hypocritical, to be tired, to be, uh, uh, to, 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 to be lethargic, uh, this is not that time. It's the time for us to be on our game because darkness is pressing and they're pressing hard. But darkness is defined as the absence of light, right? Darkness cannot encroach upon this room as long as these lights are on. You will not see darkness all of a sudden start to eat away at the light. It doesn't work that way. Darkness is only present when the lights are off. Darkness is not a thing in and of itself. Darkness is the absence of a thing. So if darkness is encroaching, what's going to stop it? The presence of light. So we need to be the light. While people are still listening, we need to still be telling. It's not the time to back down. It's not the time to sit out. The time to shine forth while it's still day. The hymn says, Work for the night is coming when men work no more. We are at a unique time in our culture, a unique time in our society, and of course, none of us knows what the future will hold. But that's okay. We know who holds the future. what we can turn our minds to. Maybe you've been fearful. Maybe you've been frustrated. Maybe you've been anxious. Elections coming up in a couple of weeks. What's going to happen? A lot of things going on. What's going to happen in our society? Are things going to literally explode, uh, figuratively explode? Um, we don't have a whole lot of control over those things, except 
for our little part of it, right? How are you doing? Where do you stand? Are you busy? Are you right? Are you right with the Lord? Are you shining the light? Are you using your opportunities? May God help us to feel this urgency in this time that is truly urgent. And may we at Legacy Baptist Church be a light into that darkness. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.